Yeah, risks and hazards. They're not yeah, the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. So that's another one where it gives you an opportunity to really spell out what your approach is. And you can either have teachers or parents sit and explain and tell and show, or you can unleash the kids into a wild space. Because I would think sticks on the ground. Kids love sticks. I mean, that's just, it seems to be a rite of passage for kids. In fact, that might even be a, a quote in the book. It's not so much a memory. I don't know if that's what you're going no, for. No, no, but... not at all. It's an open-ended question, and the nature of an open-ended question is you get open-ended answers. Well, that to me is like, that's the whole thing. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode, unstructured nature play is, I think, it's crucial because there's there's an element of choice there that children have when the yeah. play is unstructured, when the teacher or the parent is not saying, go over there and do this, now go over there and do that. There is a real freedom and independence that children have when they're making choices about where they go and what they do. That helps them think through and problem solve and be resourceful, work together. I mean, there's, there's so much skill development that happens. With ample time outside, children become attuned to subtle changes that occur throughout the year. For most people, dramatic natural events like a thunderstorm or an influx of cicadas calling is impossible to miss. But a more nuanced understanding of nature's inner workings happens in many small moments of wonder. Page 97. This is the first of several excerpts that you will hear from the book Nature Play Workshop for Families written by Monica Widow-Lubinsky and Karen Madigan. Monica is a Maryland-based naturalist and current director of the Eastern Region Association of Forest and Nature Schools. She chatted with Ian about children's nature play and some key takeaways from the book. I thought it would be really kind of fun to start out with a memorable outdoor play story that you have from your childhood. So sort of something through a child's eyes. This is probably an unfair question to start off with because you probably have about 27 stories <laughs> pop into your mind in the first split second. But are there any that kind of stand out more than others? There are. I grew up not in a particularly wild childhood, and um, we, we lived in suburbia. We lived in a neighborhood where the houses were right on top of each other, and um, everyone had small yards, a sidewalk in front of our house, our backyard backed up to someone else's, and so, you know, my best friend was five doors up, hopped the fence to her yard, yep. and... <laughs> That was the kind of situation it was, but we had this huge maple tree in our front yard and I loved that maple tree. I, I don't know, you know, I hear so many stories now of teachers that have, that say similar things. They had an affinity for a particular tree. So again, mm -hmm. it's just this kind of natural, you're naturally drawn to it, but this beautiful maple tree in our front yard and the lowest branch was just low enough that if I tried really hard, I could, I could climb up the trunk, I could get to the first branch, and I 
the joke in my family was like they would find me in the front yard hanging upside down in this tree. It was literally, like, literally upside down from this <laughs> branch. I would just, you know, lie back and um, hang from the tree. And sometimes just sit and be hidden, you know, mm-hmm. and watch the neighborhood kids go by, watch my, my family go in and out of the front door and just be hidden with that bird's eye view. The tree was really special to me. And a really sad thing happened. Oh. The tree, the roots were, were, it was so close to our house. It was causing our basement to flood. It was causing flooding yeah. issues. And um, my dad cut the tree down. And it was heartbreaking. I was probably about 12 when it happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that really deeply affected me. I mean, I mourned, I cried and I really mourned. I get upset thinking about it still. And there was another tree that we planted and my dad felt horrible about it. He didn't want to do it either, but he didn't know what else to do. Um, So yeah, between a rock and a hard place. It was, you know, and again, this is like, what a, can there be a more clear example of the issues that we have as people trying to share nature in urban situations? And this happens a lot. And these are these are difficult things to do. So my happy childhood memory <laughs> is also <laughs> one of my saddest childhood memories. Um, but I think really it did it did make me think about our relationship to nature. And that certainly manifested itself very well in your professional life over two decades you've been involved in setting up three nature-based preschools yeah pretty significant stuff and really nature-based education has has just taken off and it's not as though it's a new thing obviously and those who've read about it and those who read your book will also see that but what is it about nature-based education right now that has caught so many people's attention well, I think a lot of people are are familiar with the work of David Sobel. You know, years back, he wrote this great essay called Beyond Ecophobia, and yeah. he really explored the role of, you know, nature in middle and early and late childhood. And that got me thinking, um, and a lot of people thinking, and uh, Richard Louvre on the, the heels of um, David Sobel also thinking about this in his book, Last Child in the Woods. That book seemed to really put it into focus for for so many people as far as our disconnect from nature, our, our the change from being a largely a society that farmed and worked on the land and worked with the land to just being indoors, having media and video games and culture that just moved inside and plugged in. Um, so... I think although the the roots of nature preschools in the United States, you know, you start to see them growing in the second half of the 20th century, you start to see them slowly, really in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were only a handful of examples that people were aware of. Once David Sobel, to me, I feel like he kicked off a lot of this Mm -hmm. work. So did Patty Bailey, who is a She's a professor at University of Maine, Farmington, but she she was at Slitz Audubon, where they had also started a, a nature-based preschool at their nature center. And there are a handful of these, these programs that became really influential in terms of nature preschools in the U.S. And I think that everybody was kind of collectively saying, 
this is too much. The kids are not relating to each other in what feel like normal, healthy ways. Kids don't even seem to know what to do when you tell them to go outside and play. They're at a loss. They don't even, they don't want to. And there was one interview at some point, I, there was a little child that was on the interview, maybe a 10 or 12 year old child. And he said, um, they said, do you like to go outside and play? And he said, I don't really like to go outside and play. And the interviewer said, why? And he said, because there aren't any plugs out there. Ouch. You know, so it was, yeah. yes, right, right. So, um, so I think a lot of teachers working with kids and spending time outside, even in traditional settings, recognizing this sort of change in childhood. And those changes are affecting how kids relate to each other, how kids relate to the world, obviously, how kids, you know, have a sense of, have or don't have a sense of place of authentic place um, in the communities where they live you know you're also seeing just socially how homogenous one city is to the next how you can see the same stores the same restaurant yeah generic yes everything starts to just it's like mush like where are the special aspects of one community to the next and it has to do with the land and the history and how people including indigenous people have used those spaces so I think when you talk about the rise of, of outdoor learning, I think it has so much to do with people like you and I looking back on our own childhoods and thinking about how much time we spent outdoors and just how it feels like it's changed. And there's a, a longing, especially as you become a parent or an aunt or an uncle and you're, you have little children in your life and you're thinking back about what it was for you um, in terms of childhood and nature connection and just hoping to pass that on and, and wondering, you know, is there something we can do in terms of those earliest, most memorable learning experiences, those, those critical pieces of brain development that happen before the age of five, something like 90% of your brain development is occurring up until the yeah. age of five. So how can we wire these connections that stay in place throughout our play? So nature preschools and also forest kindergartens, nature kindergartens, a lot of terms we could unpack, but to various degrees, these outdoor learning programs can ensure that we are giving that those kinds of experiences to young children still and always. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a nonprofit that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. For only $32 a year, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine-back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. Climbing trees is risky play for sure, but with freedom to try and perhaps fail and try again, we grow determined to navigate obstacles. Page 106. Let's kind of look at the basic foundations of children's outdoor play, because it isn't necessarily just about going into nature for the sake of being in nature and, for example, naming all the species. I mean, it, a lot of it's about socializing and building resilience and that grit. And I mean, the word grit comes from dirt, grit in your shoes can build <laughs> emotional grit as well. So what are some of the kind of key tenets of children's outdoor play beyond just we're outside? Because it, it is certainly more specific than that. It is. There are several I would, I would describe. Unstructured nature play is, I think, it's crucial because there's, there's an element of choice there. 
that children have when the play is unstructured, when the teacher or the parent is not saying, go over there and do this, now go over there and do that. There is a real freedom and independence that children have when they're making choices about where they go and what they do. That helps them think through and problem solve and be resourceful, work together. I mean, there's there's so much skill development that happens when children are left to their own devices. So unstructured nature play is a way that we are honoring the fact that children are capable of making those choices. They are capable of directing a lot of their own learning. That I would say is like point number one. And it's our job then as parents or educators to facilitate experiences in a way that, you know, I'm using air quotes when I say safe, to ensure that in as much as we can, make sure there's no hazards, there's nothing dangerous in the environment, but yet enough challenge, enough excitement, enough mystery, and, and enough risk that kids can calculate that they can, they can gain all those rich benefits of making choices, discovering things on their own, so stuff of science inquiry, when they're making, they're testing things out, they're tinkering with materials, they're getting up close and taking a closer look, or they're really observing for a long time what's going on outside and, and just messing about, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Puttering. You know, it's really the stuff of, it's just, that's the, that's the problem solving, that's the learning, that is what it is. And you can either have teachers or parents sit and explain and tell and show, or, you can unleash the kids into a wild space and let them figure it out on their own. And when they figure it out on their own, then again, they're finding their voice. They're finding mm-hmm. their identity. It's intentional. Yeah, they get to figure out like what makes them tick. What are they most excited about? And then again, you know, again, in terms of that outdoor learning piece. So I really focus on helping teachers understand why unstructured nature play is important because to me i feel like that's the hardest thing yeah it's like, <laughs> get out of here <laughs> almost <laughs> well you know a trained teacher let's face it when you go to a university and you study education mm-hmm. you learn how to write a lesson plan uh... and when you get observed what does your supervisor observe they're not observing how well you facilitate learning. They're observing you leading teacher directed, read teacher directed. Yeah, top down. Right. And that's where they place the emphasis on how well you're able to teach. So when you have teachers that come at it from that, you know, all good teachers, it's a it's a really gut instinct to understand that these experiential kinds of moments are where the learning is taking place. So that's not to say that teacher-directed learning doesn't have a, a role to play. But for my part, I just feel like that's what teachers are already coming at us knowing how to do because that's where, that's what they're told is important in practice. Even yeah. in theory, they'll, they'll learn about why play matters. But in practice, that's usually how that plays out. So I spend a lot of time helping teachers map out, okay, when we're observing unstructured nature play, how can you link it back to those early learning standards that you're required to demonstrate? How do you take that looking backwards approach to say, oh my gosh, wow, do you see how much time they spent with that stick? Did you hear what he said to her? Did you see how they then pulled in that little friend and found this other artifact and you know there's there's a lot that you can examine and then map back to all sorts of skill development but it is a different approach because it isn't as prescribed that emergent curriculum piece is also really important and then 
understanding what is emergent curriculum, how is it co-created with the children, with your co-teacher, with the environment itself, the land itself, the seasonal elements. And then how do we as, I don't want to say experts, but teachers who understand developmentally appropriate practices, how do we as teachers then take what we know about skill development for typically developing children, children who do have diverse abilities and and special considerations in their development, and just the uniqueness of every child anyways, right? They all have their own interests and and ideas. So we're, we're really combining what's happening seasonally and what's happening in this emerging curriculum and then supplementing with what we know about the children, their skill development and their needs, and then supporting, supplementing, furthering, enriching. You know, how do we, where, where are the places where we want to stimulate, where we want to target growth in a particular area without interrupting, without, you know, we don't want to come crashing into their play and interrupting or destroying what they're already kind of working on and directing. So where it's this dance of kids are kids are exploring kids are figuring things out kids are working in different ways and then we are then kind of moving in to the space and then coming back out again with say tools or a material or a field guide or you know so i think in terms of outdoor learning to be as successful and powerful and meaningful as it really can be i think teachers should be considering how children direct the learning through that emergent curricular piece. And that has in large part to do with unstructured nature play. And then how do we balance the emergent curriculum with intentional teaching practices? And there's not one right or wrong way to do this. It's really important that if you're a childcare provider and, you know, maybe your outdoor space, you might not have a hundred acres to explore. You may have, you know, a quarter of an acre parcel in your backyard. And nature play and outdoor learning is still accessible to you. It just looks different. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change. Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. Challenge yourself to find 10 different sticks of various sizes and colors. When you slow down to look closely, you may be surprised by the variety of sticks around you. Page 104. Let's get back to the emergent curriculum and say you're in temperate zone and you're in an area where we'll use maple trees as an example. And there's been a windstorm, lots of leaves are down, say it's October. And you've got a group of kids and they're really interested in a whole bunch of sticks that have fallen on the ground. And you mentioned sticks a few times in the book. So what is a potential example of how an educator can react to that kind of situation? Because I would think sticks on the ground, kids love sticks. I mean, that's just... It seems to be a rite of passage for kids. In fact, that might even be a a quote in the book. There's something about something like that being a rite of passage. But in any case, you know, a whole bunch of sticks have fallen on the ground. Kids are really interested, kicking the leaves. What does a a teacher do when they observe that? Or what is one of the many things a teacher could do? Uh, The first thing would be, you know, as as a teacher, seasonally, you're always going to have a couple of things in your backpack. 
you're going to be aware of what's going on around you. So you may have a field guide in your backpack that's tree ID. You may have some leaf shapes already kind of laminated or offered in a basket so that impromptu, if kids are figuring out like, oh, is do we have one of these? Oh, this one's round. Oh, this is. And then because that sets up a moment where if a child expresses interest, now they might be starting to ask questions. And that's how the teacher could then support more learning about mm -hmm. those trees without being the one to lead it. So that could be one thought. But just generally speaking, for me, you know, if I was just as curious, if there were new branches, large branches, ones that still have some leaves down, for me, a lot of times, I find it useful to demonstrate my authentic curiosity about what's going on without saying anything. Mm -hmm. So if I'm genuinely, as a teacher, genuinely curious or interested in what's there on the ground, I walk over to it and I'll pick something up or I'll take a look at it and put it back down on the ground. Or I'll sit down with my backpack and I'll pull out a field guide and start coming through. And I don't have to say anything. They're watching my curiosity unfold. And that gives them this unspoken permission to do the same. So again, and then some children may choose to interact or ask questions, but generally they're, they're probably going to start um, making some meaning on their own. They might be picking up leaves. Some of them may want to sort them. Some children may notice colors. Some children may want to connect the leaves, may start poking holes through the leaves or threading them on sticks, or there's any number of things they could choose to do. But as they do that, there's, again, that combination of, you know, do I take out my journal? Maybe there's a really striking leaf that is speaking to me in that moment. Maybe I pull out my own nature journal and pick up a stick and dip it in the nearby mud. And maybe I'm going to see if I can make that brown bit from the bark on my nature journal. Or maybe I'm going to see if I can rub some of the soil and start playing around with the color and experimenting. And they're just watch, you know, they're either watching it or ignoring it. It's okay if they ignore that too. Yep. They're off doing their own thing. But it's that kind of modeling that gives permission for that what, as I'm supervising. But it feels really, it's very freeing for the kids to not be told what to do. With question of sticks, it comes up a lot because <laughs> for teachers who are not used to being outside with kids, sticks can feel very problematic. Um, yeah, they turn into swords fairly quickly. <laughs> then it's, are they allowed to pick up sticks? Should they pick up sticks? How big are the sticks? Are they allowed to swing the sticks? Are they allowed to have gun play? Are they allowed to use them as weapons? All these really important questions will come up. And it is not my job to answer those questions for any other program. To me, it's, okay, good. Have those conversations and decide amongst your team what feels right and okay for you. There's a lot of different ways we could look at it, but just recognizing that sticks are plentiful and they're readily available and they're a wonderful way that kids can learn about, I mean, all sorts of aspects of nature. What's living in them? What's living on them? What's growing on them? What colors are they? What happens when you tear them apart? How do they grow? What's flowing up and down the tree? I mean, there's just so much. So to say, no, we don't pick up sticks to me is just, that's a crazy notion. But once you say, okay, well, we're okay with using the sticks, but now what are the parameters or guidelines? You know, I feel every program has to think of that for themselves. And that leads into some of the discussion that comes up as far as risk benefit assessments. And yeah, risks and hazards. 
They're not yeah. the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. So that's another one where it gives you an opportunity to really spell out what your approach is for that particular risky play activity. How do you approach it? And then communicate that with families so that they understand. And again, sometimes I'm talking as if I'm speaking to parents and sometimes I'm talking as if I'm speaking to teachers, but yeah, all things to consider. Yeah. And I mean, the teacher being in a supervisory position, of course, has to make sure that there aren't hazards that could be extremely dangerous. Something very simple, like playing near a busy motorway. You want to yeah. make sure that, that kids are ste steering clear of that. But the, the risk benefit analysis of falling, you know, a kid's balancing on a log and then they fall off the log and they scrape their knee and, you know, maybe there's a little bit of blood. You know, I don't think any parents like, yay, blood, great. But at the same time, <laughs> if, it, if it's a little, you know, surface wound and it'll be fine in a couple of days, throw a Band-Aid on it. Yeah. What's the harm? Right. I mean, and again, people have different comfort levels. To me, it's, I think about, is it going to cause death or debilitating injury? If it's not, then there's a good chance that it's, the risk could be beneficial, could, you know, it depends on what the thing is. But generally speaking, you know, if we're doing our best to remove the really obvious hazards and dangerous things kids can't weigh, they can't figure out on their own, we, we remove those, we plan for those. We're monitoring our sites every day, making sure that we've we've removed those things. Then we can parse out what is acceptable, <laughs> acceptable and really beneficial risk. And I do know there's one instance I know of where there was a, a school, um, the kids were doing some outdoor learning. Um, now, this was a, a traditional school setting. This was not a forest or nature school. And they really didn't have a plan in place for how to use sticks. They just you know, they thought, okay, well, we're this traditional program, but we want to be progressive and just let the kids play. But they hadn't thought through any sort of risk-benefit assessment. I don't believe they had had conversations as a staff about how to approach this. And um, one of the children did get wild with a stick and caused eye injury to another child because they were just <laughs> whipping it around and it, right. was, it was dangerous. Yeah. But that was that had to do with the teacher's approach and the school's approach and not considering that as an actual activity that can be beneficial, but also an activity that it does pose some degree of risk. So if you haven't, if you don't have safety routines in place, if you're not saying, hey, sticks need space. Remember, sticks need space. Hey, what's your plan with that stick? Okay. You know, yeah, it's not just saying no sticks. It's right. Think about what you're doing with it. Exactly. So it's not to say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to sugarcoat and say it's all rosy. There are so many benefits to some of the incredible experiences that kids get to have that are so varied and so rich and deep, but it does come with different kinds of risks than you're going to encounter, of course, in space with four walls and a roof. So it's our job to think about that and plan for that to, again, air quotes, keep kids safe and, and every program and every family really has to define what, what does that mean to you. Yeah, case by case, child by child, really. Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. Thoughtfully collect bits of natural materials that speak to you. These special collections can help you learn about the plants, animals, land, and seasons as they change page 98. That segues nicely to your book that you wrote in collaboration with Karen Madigan, published by Quarry Books, Nature Play Workshop for Families. And it has over 40 activities that can certainly be adapted. They're in the spirit of outdoor nature play. They're guides. 
and some really, really fun stuff. Just a few that really caught my eye. Walnut boats. There are lots of activities about water. You do a phenological approach all four seasons plus some year-round activities. And each season has at least one activity related to water in some form or the other, whether it be frost, whether it be ice, whether it be snow, whether it be rain, whether it be puddles, waterways, you know, even temporary waterways that maybe students make by creating little channels in the mud. So yeah, walnut boats, that one stood out. Making paper using the fibers of plants, that one really stood out as well. Were, were there any, any kind of favorites for you in that mix of 40 plus? Gosh, favorites. Hard um, question again. <laughs> well, I like the ones that you mentioned. The walnut boats is one that will really challenge a kid to fiddle around with balance, to get the balance just right for the boat to sail. Yeah, it was so like it, a little uh, sail of a, a <laughs> leaf, uh, any kind of leaf, really. But it's challenging to get it to actually float upright, and it yeah. does. It requires some doing with the kids. So that's plus we've enjoyed doing experiments where um, there's a little uh, in one program, a little footbridge over a creek. And so some kids could go down to the bottom of the creek with a little walnut boat and float the boat. And then another child from the top of the bridge could toss a twig in and have little races, you know, to see yep. like what I did gonna... a stick race like a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> They're so fun. We're like, you know, tossing in a walnut, you know, just like a whole walnut. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, as far as favorites go, the co-author Karen Madigan, she does these, she makes these beautiful felted rocks. Yes, I love that. Most satisfying and the sensory aspect of that for the children. It's really nice and um, it combines learning about wool and wool as a fiber yeah. with, you know, the stones and then the stones become these really open-ended playthings, uh, you know, and again, storytelling, which is something we like to do where we yeah. like, let the stone talk to us or incorporate the stone in some other building kind of experience outside. Those just feel so special to me. So I love Karen's edition of the felted stones. And I also love the just simple act of making stone cairns to stack mm -hmm. and to mark your movement through a space. I think that that's fun too, because lifting up rocks, seeing what lives there, learning about what just happens under a rock is one thing. And one really great thing that sometimes we don't even want to stack the rocks because we need to put it back, recognizing there's something that's living there. But along a creek or a stream where there are, the rocks are more plentiful, you know, that can also become a really fun activity. And there's so many ways kids engage in that activity. Some do really care about stacking the stones as high as they can and making yeah, them Jenga. down. Yes, like Jenga, exactly. Jenga style. <laughs> <laughs> but other kids are just really captivated by the shapes of the stones or finding a particular shaped stone or finding them all in the same size or color. And then that can lead to, again, just making marks with the stones and seeing what can make a red streak, what can make an ochre mm -hmm. kind of streak. So I like that because, again, it's like so many of these experiences in the book, we try to, we offer an experience, an, a nature play experience that's a suggestion of how do you facilitate that unstructured nature play for parents who aren't as comfortable with doing that. And then it can lead into 
something that's a project that you would do together. So yeah, there's a lot of favorites. I also really like, um, you mentioned the frost and I really like the Jack Frost. There's a glaze that can be made and painted on things. And that's kind of magic to see the crystals form different than ice crystals forming. Yes. Yeah. Totally different process. Really fun. Kind of an underlying theme in all the activities is creating something. So finding natural artifacts and even synthetic artifacts, which is mentioned, you know, bottle caps and so on. And there's even a chapter dedicated specifically to loose parts and small worlds play. And that has gotten quite a bit of popularity in recent times or kind of a renaissance in recent times again. And what's kind of behind the sort of underlying theory behind using loose parts in these artifacts to create who knows what? (laughs) Yeah. So as you mentioned, that's very much a buzzword or sort of term in early childhood education, as well as environmental or nature-based education, loose parts play. So the, the gentleman who coined the term Nicholson, he, he actually was from an architectural background, but he recognized that just the ability to move things around and manipulate those things had great value. So what we consider today as loose parts play is really born out of that, just how many different materials and how we can put them together in just novel ways is a segue for creative play, social play, because you're interacting with other kids, sort of figuring things out and engineering and just, there's just so many, it's open-ended. There's so many possibilities. So throughout the book, you'll see examples of reusing things, trying to repurpose different things, as you mentioned, um, yogurt containers or bottle caps or, you know, what whatever it might be. And also just this idea of plentiful, natural, loose parts. And teachers who don't have a lot of money, who don't have a lot to work with in terms of a budget, there's natural materials that are plentiful that we can use and return back to nature when they're finished. So, and parents, you can engage families by inviting them to share plentiful materials that they may have near where they live or in their yard. And it also can have some good conservation types of conversations around, is it okay to use this? Is it okay to collect this or take this? What do we do with it when we're done? So I think those, you know, this idea of the honorable harvest that Robin Wall Kimmerer in her book, Writing Sweetgrass, and she talks about asking permission for things that we use before we take them and only taking exactly what we need. So there's, you know, loose parts play can be play of all these like wonderful, plentiful things, recycled and natural, but it can also lead into those other kinds of conversations that can be running through a child's mind of understanding like, huh, well, there are only so many of those. We're not gonna pick those, but this plant grows here and it's, I mean, again, I'm not about doom and gloom, so I am sensitive about conversations where invasive plants, for example. (laughs) Yes, but, you know, there could be something instructive, like if you've got, say, sugar and Norway maples on your school grounds, sugar maples native in eastern North America, Norway maples not. Norway maple isn't as invasive. It's not as problematic as things like garlic mustard or dog strangling vine, but there could be an interesting discussion of like, Well, if you're going to collect a stick from a maple or seed from a maple, maybe it's best to go with the Norway maple because it's not native here. And I think you kind of remove the doom and gloom, but there's still that teachable moment and they also still get to keep an artifact. So it's it's kind of win-win. Absolutely. You mentioned the garlic mustard. I mean, that's another, there are a lot of foraging experiences. Yeah, salad. Yeah. There's so 
many great recipes and I feel like I'm learning new ones all the time about what making wild teas and foraging plants to use for herbal and medicinal teas. I mean, that's just a favorite thing to do with my family as well as with other teachers and children. And it's a great way to make, I mean, that is a literal connection. We are here on this land. We see these violets that are growing and they're plentiful and we can use these leaves to make a tea if we're feeling a little under the weather or you know i mean it's very empowering to know what's under your feet and to understand how it can be used for healing or for food and yeah it's it's very empowering so many teachers i'll go and lead a session on someone's school grounds and i just can't help myself i'm looking around and like ah did you see did you know that you have Oh, you've got this. Look at all this wood sorrel you have. It's delicious. Have you ever tasted? They're just kind of looking at each other. Like, what is she talking about? And it's a pretty little flower. It is. So there's, I think that that, again, with the frame in mind that we want to be sure we know what we're actually taking and that we can truly identify it before we have any child taste anything or adult taste anything, but, and not take more than we should if it's a plant that's a scarce plant, but eating, tasting, hunting, growing, gardening. I mean, those are really important ways that we directly connect with the land. It's nourishing our bodies and we in turn can nourish it and help the plant to continue to grow in, you know, in other ways. So yeah, I think the foraging experiences are really fun too. For sure. In our ongoing efforts to engage with people from as many different communities as possible, we will speak to guests whose views may variously differ from or align with yours. Green Teacher is an inclusive space and we welcome people from all backgrounds, perspectives and faiths in a collective spirit of collaboration and exploration. Our bodies and minds were designed to relate to nature for survival and nature play continues to manifest this basic human instinct. Page 12. Just before we wrap up, I thought we would bring it full circle. I asked at the beginning about a memorable outdoor play story from your childhood, so through a child's eyes. What about now seeing outdoor play through an adult's eyes, particularly in the modern day, 2021, and we'll not talk about COVID, (laughs) post-COVID? I think that there's a lot of promise. There's a lot of promise, a lot of hope, still so much joy and wonder that I feel when I get to be with children outdoors. And I know I'm not alone in that. Teachers everywhere feel that as they find ways to facilitate this kind of meaningful nature connection, outdoor play, these these aha kinds of moments that children get to have outdoors. And it's so much more than curriculum. We want and need to, in many cases, justify those aspects of why we take kids outside, why it benefits them, and it really does in so many superior ways to indoor learning. But beyond that, to me, there is that emotional and even spiritual aspect of feeling what it means to be part of something so much larger than yourself. And yeah, as far as far as a memory, all, all I can say is that kind of knowing, that kind of belonging, and that kind of um, just empathy and love for the place where you live. And I just think that wouldn't the world be such a nicer place if, if more children and adults were thinking along those lines, thinking about connectedness, thinking about shared spaces and balance and working together and this kind of cooperative aspects of, well, we're in nature, we're part of nature, we are nature, 
And just that understanding comes when children can freely roam and explore and make find that out for themselves. Find that out for themselves by putting their ear to a tree or hearing the birds overhead, watching them fly, you know, just as I had my own experience as a child and you had your own experience as a child, we can give these kinds of experiences. We can put ourselves in the place and the mindset to try to give these experiences to children. So yes, it will benefit their development academically, lots of skills that they'll learn, but it will also fill them as people. It will help to clarify who they are as a human in this place on this land, on this planet, as part of humankind and as just part of the natural world. So it's not so much a memory. <laughs> I don't know if that's what you're going no, for. No, no, but... not at all. It's an open-ended question. And the nature of an open-ended question is you get open-ended answers. Well, that to me is like, that's the whole thing. That's what makes me so passionate about this work. It's how it makes me feel, that feeling that I personally feel and that I feel like it's a gift and, um, and also a huge responsibility and one that I hope more teachers can come to know for themselves and more children can come to know for themselves. I think it's part of how children are, um, are really saving our planet and we can hold their hands through that. For sure. And you certainly dig into that very nicely in your book, Nature Play Workshop for Families. It was published in 2020, publishing in 2020, an accomplishment in and of itself. <laughs> In collaboration with Karen Madigan, published by Quarry Books. It's a wonderful book, beautifully illustrated, lovely photographs. I certainly enjoyed it. We'll have a review in our March 2021 issue of Green Teacher. So thank you, Monica, for joining us this morning. I appreciate this opportunity to chat with you. Nature plays tears of remembrance inside us, a deep, undeniable desire to connect with other living things, no matter how small. Leaf by leaf, children grow their own personal understanding about what it means to be part of nature. Page 11. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terian. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. I realized that the first time I mentioned the title of the book, I actually said it wrong. And that's the beauty of not doing this live. I said Nature Play Workshop for Kids. So I will splice the correct title of the book in for the, for the, you're probably like, what kind of interviewer is this guy? It doesn't even know the name of the book. Honestly, it's funny that you say that because I didn't even pick up on that. So <laughs> yep. no worries. I realized it right after.